Your city. Your station. Your Hello and welcome back. That, of course, was science fiction double feature from the Rocky Horror Show. Uh, Andy, would you like to tell me what you suggested about? Well, I think it's a great uh, show, of course, but um, the song name checks all those old movies that I remember when I was a kid, which was, of course, centuries ago. Um, at the end of the 1950s, with people worried about alien invaders and nuclear radiation turning tarantulas into giant uh, monsters and mad scientists creating strange creatures in the lab, all that stuff. Um, and of course in those days it was physicists who were always the villains. We were the guys with the nuclear radiation and such like. Um, You've uh, been replaced by geneticists. Geneticists, exactly. Now they're the, the real demons of science, uh, playing God and so on, and physicists get a, a relatively uh, easy walk of it. Um, and of course the show is, uh, Rocky Horror show is uh, incredibly camp um, and it ends with some with the narrator saying something along the lines of crawling on the planet's face some insects called the human race lost in time and lost in space and meaning <laughs> uh, so earlier I made a joke about CERN and its endless path to try and destroy the world which is something which constantly ends up in the news so I apologise for bringing it up but would you like to explain why you're not going to destroy the world? Yeah, I think we're reasonably safe. Um, the the scare is about making black holes, and um, if you have a universe with more than four space dimensions, which is hypothetical, to say the least, but it is something we're trying to investigate, uh, then it's possible for gravity to be much stronger than we think. Um, the reason for that is the shape of space-time is to do with gravity. Einstein tells us that space is uh, shaped and warped by the presence of mass and, uh, and so the, uh, an extra-dimensional world would have a different uh, form of space-time in which gravity could be a lot stronger. Not necessarily, but it could be. And in that case, it's possible to make effects which you would expect to be impossible uh, in a four-dimensional world, and one of those is to make a black hole in the lab. Now, I must admit that does sound dangerous. Um, the health and safety people would probably require a very serious risk assessment, um, but the thing about black holes is that they evaporate. Uh, Hawking, in fact, demonstrated this quite a long time ago. Um, the, the, a black hole, it sounds like everything is trapped in it forever, but um, in a quantum world, uh, matter can leak out of a black hole and energy can leak out of a black hole, so they evaporate um, in a rather wonderful way. They actually get hotter as they evaporate, um, and then they go pop. And basically the pop is the reverse of the process you use to make them. So um, if you can make them, the inverse process is possible, and in quantum mechanics that more or less guarantees that they will dissipate. But you don't want to trust Hawking with the entire fate of the planet, so you also look at the real evidence, and uh, although the LHC is the highest energy machine that we've ever made, out there in the cosmos there are things which make much higher energy particles than we can, and they rain down on us as cosmic rays. Um, not very often, uh, which is why we can't use them to study things, because the rate is far too low, but on the scale of 4 billion years of the existence of the planet, we've been hammered by many, many very high-energy particles hitting the top of the atmosphere, as has the sun, as has everything else out there. Uh, 
um, and we don't see things being gobbled up by black holes. So that implies either, one, the whole thing is wrong, that is, you can't make a black hole this way, in which case we're safe, or two, you can make a black hole, but they don't eat anything, in which case we're safe. So I think the evidence that the planet is still sitting here is, is uh, strong evidence that we're, we're safe from doing a rather lower energy thing in the lab. Well, the good news is, of course, if we do, if you do find out you are wrong, that um, well, no one's going to be able to hold you accountable. Absolutely, uh, it's a good place to be in. So yeah, if you have any questions, feel free to email them in at studio at camfm.co.uk or to use the um, form on the web player. We can just type them straight in there. Uh, now I'm going to move on because you mentioned multiple dimensions. That there's a book which was actually originally a satire about uh, Victorian culture but it's called Flatwald, Flatland sorry, and um, it's a tale all about different two-dimensional shapes. That's right um, they live on a surface and there are squares and triangles and circles wandering around on this surface and uh, as you say it's um, most of the plot is actually a satire of the uh, Victorian social hierarchy, but it does illustrate rather well the, the concept of extra dimensions, because in a flat land, everything is confined to the surface, so we could sit and look ab from above, and we would see the whole of the flat land laid out before us, but the creatures in it could never see anything going on above them or below them, because all of their world uh, exists only in that plane. Now, when people think of extra dimensions, they tend to imagine that the extra dimension goes off somewhere else. This is quite common in fiction. You, they talk about going to an extra dimension, and it's, it's portrayed as zooming off to somewhere else. But actually, if you imagine a flat land, and you imagine yourself standing above the table looking down on it, as far as they're concerned, they have a two coordinates that they work in. They can go left and right, and they can go up and down their table. And you can be in exactly the same place as they are in those two coordinates. You can be directly above them. They can never see you. So you are present all over their flatland. Your extra dimension leads out of it. But it also has the same coordinates as they do. So everything in the extra dimensions is present across their whole world. And it would be the same for a fifth dimension for us. I say five because we already have four. That is X, Y, Z, or left, right, up, down, sideways. Um, plus time. We live in a four-dimensional world. If you add one to that, you don't get a world which is somewhere else but parallel to ours. You get something which is all around us. It could be just a millimeter away down this extra dimension, but it fills the whole room in all directions as well. So that's kind of cute. And it's quite hard to visualize that, but if you visualize it from a flatlander's perspective, a cube in a flatland could either look like a square, but if it's at a different angle, it will look like a hexagon or a triangle. That's right, absolutely. It just depends on how it intersects with your world. Uh, that's a very good example because the cube, to them, has nothing except its section through their plane. Um, and so the fact that it's present all over the place, above them and below them, they know nothing about. So yeah, if you want to try and work that one out, get, get yourself a cube and start slicing into different ways and see how you can cut it up. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where you could buy good cubes to cut up. <laughs> so maybe there's some type of cake you can buy in a cube. Anyway, we'll get, uh, with that, we'll um, proceed to our next song. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy this one. All Hit Radio! And it's 53 degrees at 13 minutes past the hour. And right now in our all-request line, I've got Mike Ledgerwood on the phone. Hey, babe, what would you like to hear? We've been 
Hey, babe, I'm sorry. I can't hear you too well. You're going to have to speak a little closer into the phone. Okay, babe, what would you like to hear again? We Hey, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but that's not on our playlist. And by the way, you sound great over the phone. Anyway, if you give us your request, we'll be glad to play it for you, babe. So let's hear it. We Listen, Mike, I'm sorry, babe, but we can't... And we'd like to make... I'm sorry, Mike, we... There's... A contact uh, with you. Thank you. 
and that was the Carpenters were calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Uh, the reason I played that was there's an interesting story behind it. In March in 1953, an organisation known as the International Flying Saucer Bureau, and I didn't make that up, that really did exist, uh, decided to have an experiment where they, um, well, they called it World Contact Day, whereby on a predetermined date and time, that they would get all their members to try and collectively send a telepathic me message out to space, and the words of the message started with calling occupants of interplanetary craft. Uh, I believe they're still waiting for a reply. I expect so. So we've had a question come in during that break, so if you do have any questions, feel free to send them in to studio at camfm.co.uk or via the um, little box on the web player. And um, this question came in from Maggie, and it's, how many dimensions do you think exist? Obviously the three we're used to and the fourth is time, but I've heard people refer to more than that, so I'll pass that over to you, Andy. Well, that's right. We're certainly looking for extra dimensions at the moment. Um, it's a very interesting concept. Many people would have heard of string theory, uh, which suggests that um, matter is actually made out of tiny little vibrations which exist in more than four dimensions. Uh, 11 was popular for a while and 14 has been mooted as a good number. Um, but the ones we're looking for are much bigger than that and it's uh, they come in two varieties. So one possibility is that they're uh, circular. So that's a bit strange. Um, but if you think of the, the planet, if you set off in one direction, eventually you come back where you started from. You go around in a large circle. And in, um, in general relativity, it's perfectly possible to warp space into a circular form. And so you can have uh, dimensions like that, which can be, um, well, we don't know any real size for them, but they could be as, as big as a millimeter, say, uh, which we wouldn't see at all because we can't get into them, but gravity can get into them. And the idea is that we bash our particles together and it creates such a disturbance that it resonates in, the, in this uh, extra dimension, rather like an organ pipe and you get to see the energy coming back. So you could, in principle, measure the size of them. So these curled up ones, um, you can have one, you can have two, and so on, and their effects get, uh, get bigger and bigger as you make more of them. Um, one is pretty much ruled out, two is okay, and physicists kind of count one, two, and then many. So once you go past two, then you figure, well, we really don't know. It could be any number. Um, but there is also another rather curious type, which isn't circular, but which is, um, which is warped. So they go off towards infinity, but as you travel along this extra dimension, you shrink rather like Alice in Wonderland um, until you end up the size of a superstring. And if you come back the other way, then you grow back to your normal size again. And you don't feel a thing, because it's actually the size of space itself that shrinks as you move in this extra dimension. It's rather like if you went um, sideways uh, across a road, nothing would happen. But if you went up and down the road, then you'd grow and shrink, depending on how far you went. So that is a really strange phenomenon. So if you have any feedback on that, feel free to send in your messages. And that brings us, I think, to our next thing, which we're going to talk about, was you were, you, maybe you still are a fan of Star Trek? Well, it, I, I'm not a Trekkie, um, but, I've, <laughs> but I've seen an awful lot of Star Trek in my life, yes. We'll, we'll make that clear, okay. Um, and um, the distortions of space link into warp drives, I believe, which is the staple of that TV series, is Faster Than Light. That's right. In Star Trek, they use subspace a lot, and um, th and they also drive their ships with a matter-antimatter combination through via the mysterious dilithium crystals, uh, which Spock is forever adjusting. Um, now, uh, the idea of a subspace uh, is based, I think, on extra dimensions. This was a popular thing in the 50s, the idea that there was a fifth dimension. 
um, and indeed it was first proposed in the 1930s, so it was around in the culture even then. Um, and the idea is that you uh, somehow move your ship out of normal space where um, everything is constrained to move slower than the speed of light into this extra space which allows you somehow to go faster. Um, now Star Trek doesn't actually explain how this works, um, but there is a physicist called Alcubierre, a Mexican guy, um, who wrote a very interesting paper uh, suggesting that you could actually have such a um, such a configuration, even in four dimensions actually, but it probably works a bit better in, in more. And the idea is, first you need some exotic matter. Um, so what is exotic <laughs> matter? It, well, it's, not, it's not matter from the Caribbean or something? No, um, it would be matter that calls space to either expand or contract. Now you may think that that's an odd idea, um, but our cosmologists have demonstrated that the universe is actually expanding, not only expanding, but getting faster as it expands, which implies that there is something they call dark energy, uh, which allows uh, space to stretch. Um, and there's also, uh, we're looking for the Higgs, which is a vacuum field. Um, that is, it exists only in the vacuum. And that also has uh, a strong effect on the structure of the vacuum. So with, if you could get some dark energy or Higgs field-y stuff in the bottle, um, and both of those are real physics phenomena. I mean, we haven't found the Higgs yet, but the, the betters, uh, the, the, the gamblers are pretty clear that they should find it. Then you can start to mess around with the structure of space-time. And the basic idea of the Alcubierre drive is to expand the space behind you and shrink the space in front of you so that although you don't move through space faster than light, your little bubble of space moves faster than light. And that appears to be what the Star Trek warp drive is doing. There is one or two, well, there are one or two engineering difficulties with the Alcubierre drive, as you might imagine, the first of which is we don't have any uh, exotic matter to play with. Um, but the other one is, is kind of interesting. Somebody analyzed this and said, okay, let's assume that we have enough uh, of this stuff, which uh, creates negative energy density, um, and we can deploy it however we like. Then you can show, as Alcapierre did, that with the right configuration of exotic matter and normal matter, you can make a bubble which, in principle, can travel faster than light. That's what the outer reaches of the universe do in this expanding universe that we have, actually. They're traveling away from us faster than light, even though nothing, no matter is traveling through space faster than light. Space itself is stretching faster than light. So the idea is you just stretch your bit of space in front of you, uh, sorry, behind you, and compress the bit in front of you, and off you go. Um, but the first problem that was come up with was that to arrange the matter and energy in order to create this bubble, you have to yourself, for a while, travel through space faster than light. In other words, to build an Alcubierre drive, you need an Alcubierre drive. Um, and the other problem is that the bubble is completely disconnected from the rest of the universe as it travels, which makes steering the ship rather difficult, because you can't see out the front and you can't control which way it goes. So these are issues which presumably Captain Kirk has solved, but the rest of us haven't yet managed to crack. But I think this called soft space sensors. <laughs> Or whatever other thing. I still think the best um, concept in the entirety of Star Trek is the Heisenberg compensators. Ah, the Heisenberg compensators, yes. I'd never quite worked out what they do, but every now and then somebody who describes himself as a quantum mechanic goes and fiddles with them. Yes. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's something to do, I think, with trying to overcome the problems of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which is you can't know where something is and how fast it's moving at the same time. That's absolutely correct, yes. Um, or any other similar type of couplet. 
Yes, that's right. Energy and time is another one. You, if you know how much energy you've got, you can't tell what time you're at. Um, so, um, yeah, so if you if we go on with this, looking at Star Trek, do you have any idea on how you'd make your shields on your spaceship? Because if we're going to go really fast, we're going to be a bit worried about hitting a few bricks on the way, or hygiene atoms will probably be enough to smash a hole for us. Nice craft. Yes, not to mention the Klingons firing at you all the time. Uh, I've never figured out how the shield is supposed to work. It, it, um, it, it was actually shown being constructed on an episode of uh, the precursor to Star Trek and they started off with a sort of mesh with lots of electricity in it and then they gradually made the mesh holes bigger until they weren't there anymore. Uh, it implies that you can somehow concentrate electromagnetic energy into a very small volume but that runs you it or, or a thin sheet but that indeed runs you into exactly that problem of Mr. Heisenberg who doesn't like you to concentrate things like that and quantum mechanics would tend to produce lots of particles from such an energy density um, and evaporate it away so um, again, I think that's the odd engineering difficulty with the shields. So you, you, what about something like a Higgs field to push matter out of the way? Um, a Higgs field wouldn't necessarily push matter out of the way, but you could do something with uh, stretching the space so that uh, matter flowed around you without actually impacting on the front of the ship. Indeed, the bubble does that. Nothing can enter the bubble um, or get out, which, uh, as I say, is a difficulty with running the ship itself, but it is fairly well protected. Well, that's good to know that you're not <laughs> going to run into any um, faster than light debris. And of course, the final thing I think in Star Trek, which um, I think is probably the one that most young kids probably want, is the phaser, which is the sort of cowboy and western style gun of the uh, is it actually something ridiculous like the 21st century Star Trek? I think it's the 25th, isn't it? Is it I don't know. It's I know Space 1999 is horribly in the past. <laughs> yes. So is 2001, sadly. Um, yes, the phasers, now they're directed energy weapons, clearly. They, they send some sort of pulse of energy which whacks into people, and one thinks of a laser. Uh, I suspect the name is supposed to make you think of a laser. But lasers actually make pretty pathetic weapons. Um, an ordinary laser... Uh, it doesn't deliver very much punch and um, something that would drill a hole in you is an industrial scale thing rather than a handheld gadget so again it's a bit of a mystery how they work but presumably they've got a bit of antimatter in the bottle which they annihilate to produce the pulse or something like that could, could we go for a different thing rather than light though maybe um, gamma rays uh, gamma rays would kill you but probably only 50 years later from radiation poisoning. Now I think it's more likely a very intense electromagnetic field that, that uh, messes with your neurons and makes you fall over flat so that hence set phases to stun perhaps. Ah, so you've invented a stun ray as well. <laughs> no, that's, that's brilliant. So um, yeah if you've got any questions or any flaws in any of our plans to um, invent this future technology today just um, let us know on the email.
um, a highly distorted piece of uh, space-time. So rather as if you took a piece of paper and you fold it in half and then you can make two pieces of the, for flatlanders, you can make two pieces of flatland in contact with each other. Um, even though uh, to travel via flatland, you'd have to go right around the fold in the paper. Um, so this is a nice idea. It unfortunately suffers from a few engineering difficulties, rather like the Alcubierre drive, as you might expect. Um, it takes a colossal amount of energy to hold a wormhole open. And um, calculations sort of indicate that you would fry before you even got through the entrance to this thing. So you could, in theory, put matter for it? Because this is something I've not always been quite clear of wormholes, or would it shut as soon as you try to push matter through it? No, I think you can get matter through it. In fact, with, at the LHC, it's possible to create uh, not only black holes, but uh, other warped configurations for very short periods of time, I should say, order of 10 to the minus 23 seconds, so uh, not long enough to look at. Um, but such a wormhole configuration could be created, and they have some interesting properties. For example, you can bend not only space, but you can bend the time piece of space-time as well. Uh, so you can have a wormhole configuration where a particle goes in, and it loops around in time, so that at two times it's at the, sorry, at two, yes, at two, <laughs> two places at the same time, or even three or four or five places at the same time. But we're saying earlier that it can't be at the same place at the yeah. same time, no. That's too bent. Um, but that would be sitting on top of yourself, wouldn't it? Yes, that, that, uh, you, you can't warp all of them that way. It's as that that uh, would involve folding the paper too much. Um, but you would sort of Xerox copy this thing. And there are perfectly good equations for a single particle going through such a wormhole. Uh, the practical difficulty is to get lots of particles in the form of a human being or any macroscopic object into such a thing. You need a, what is, on the quantum scale, a very, very, very big wormhole, which requires a huge energy density to keep it open. Could we use this or wormhole, though, to send a message? Because it would be quite useful to at least be able to phone our future relatives on Mars without a... <laughs> it's, it's quite a long delay. I don't know how long the delay to Mars is. Um, it's certainly ooh, 15 minutes or more, I think, maybe longer than that. I'm not sure. That sounds... I, I think it's eight minutes to the sun, isn't it? And Mars is about the same distance again away from us? Uh, or is it double? It's further out, so... Yeah, I think it might be the order of 15 minutes, but you're right, it's a long time. Yep. And then if they go and live on Titan and on or any of the moons of the gas giants, they're going to be hours away by telephone. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason why you can't send a message through a wormhole. You can send photons, which is electromagnetic waves. You can send this radio show. You could send protons or particles. Anything like that could go through. In principle, the difficulty is not really with traveling through it, which is just a, a travel along a, a line of space. Um, the problem is holding the configuration open. Hawking radiation tends to make it dissipate. Uh, so you've got this incredibly warped piece of space-time. It doesn't like it. It's like bending a piece of rubber. It's got tension. And the energy in that tension evaporates through quantum processes, which emit lots of particles, which you see as a very, very hot thing, which is why you're likely to fry if you go near it. Um, so the difficulty is is not so much, well, it's difficult enough to imagine creating a wormhole, but the difficulty is, once you've got it, is keeping it long enough to do anything useful with it. So the main thing about contact is, of course, the idea that Sagan was very interested in. I'll get his name right eventually. And um, that was the idea that there is extraterrestrial intelligence out there, and that links into SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and um, the Drake equation. 
for people who haven't come across it, do you want to explain why the Drake Equation is more than just a random guess of how many little green men are out there? Well, the Drake Equation is uh, quite sensible. I'm not an astrophysicist, but it's, uh, it's certainly an interesting equation. Um, it basically counts the probability of finding, uh, well, it starts with the number of stars, and then you count the probability of finding a planet, and the probability of that planet being habitable, and the probability of a habitable, habitable planet creating life, and so on, to work out how many civilizations there should be. And at the time that uh, contact was written, in fact, we had very little information to put into it. There's nothing wrong with the equation, but we didn't know what the probabilities were. Um, but as time goes on, the probabilities look better and better. We found more and more stars. We know from the Hubble Deep Field, for example, where they looked at a tiny patch of apparently empty sky. Uh, in that tiny patch of apparently empty sky, they found tens of thousands of galaxies, each one with hundreds of billions of stars. So. There are plenty of stars to start from, um, and we've been looking now at stars to see whether there are planets around them, and the hit rate is rather high. Uh, we've only been finding the most obvious ones, that is big fat planets which are close to the stars, because that's all we can detect at the moment. But is, um, I write in thinking the way we detect them is two methods. One, you look at the star wobbling a bit because of the mass of the planet, so that helps you see it, because if it's a big thing, it wobbles more. That's right. And the other one is that the planet moves in front of the star, which makes it go dimmer because it obscures some of the light. That's right. It's a very small dimming, and both of those methods don't work so well for small rocky planets because they don't obscure much light and they don't pull very hard on the star. So we're only just reaching the point where we can see um, small rocky planets. But the fact that so many stars that we've looked at have got planets around them indicates that planet formation is actually a rather probable thing. And if planet formation is a probable thing, there will be lots of planets in habitable zones. So the remaining unknown probability is, given the planet which is in principle habitable, how good is evolution at turning out living creatures on it? That we don't know. Do we ever expect to be able to get spectrographic data, i.e. what colour these little planets are at any point? Yes, it should be possible. Um, when the planet passes in front of the star, it obscures some of the light, and the absorption line should tell you the composition of the atmosphere. So if we're really lucky, we might be able to see something like chlorophyll or something which is not physical in its origin, something we'd have to take several chemical biological processes to get there. Hmm, yes, that's right. In fact, uh, what you want is an unstable atmosphere. Unstable chemistry is a signature for life, because if you have uh, a planet with a reducing atmosphere like Venus, uh, it, it becomes stable. It turns out with a horrible sulfuric acid atmosphere, but it's stable. Um, and uh, similarly, if you had a very alkaline atmosphere, you would end up with a stable but not very nice state. Life reverses entropy, life locally. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the w strangest things that people often say are examples of strange events that can happen to cystics, like bricks suddenly being at the top of the hill, and life is exactly that. It's the brick that walks up the hill. That's right. It uses energy in order to create order around it in the form that it likes, and so uh, it creates planetary atmospheres which are of themselves unstable because life runs the processes necessary to keep it in equilibrium. Our planet didn't start with a, uh, an atmosphere with lots of oxygen in. That was created by life. Yeah, and that was that's actually named the oxygen catastrophe because of all the life that um, didn't like oxygen is now having to hide down in places of the Earth where the oxygen can't get to it. Hmm, exactly. So... Um, uh, they're still not very happy. <laughs> if we keep burning enough fossil fuels, they might get um, <laughs> get to come back. Indeed. So if you have any um, more questions on that, do remember you can send them in. We'll be happy to answer them. Um, and after this next track, uh, we'll start talking about his dark materials.
passing it around from one possible future to the next. And it was suggested that actually what happened was that the world branched into both possibilities, since there was a probability of having one and a probability of having the other. You couldn't possibly choose, and therefore the world had to branch into these things, and so it would branch all the time. And there would be many, many different worlds, all very similar. I think this is something Star Trek's used many a time. Yes, that's, uh, it's always a good plot device. Shortly after a transporter <laughs> accident and the holodeck fails. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and you find yourself in a slightly different version of the world where, strangely, everybody speaks American English. And Spock has a goatee. <laughs> Sometimes. Uh, that reminds me of one somewhere. Or they're all cowboys, yes. Um, but the multiverse is, is taken seriously by some folk who don't like the idea of quantum mechanical randomness. Um, Einstein famously said God does not play dice. Uh, but um, I think it's not uh, a popular idea amongst most quantum physicists who believe that the universe just proceeds down one track. That's one way of getting a multiverse. The other is to simply have many, many different worlds all connected by extra dimensions, which is uh, kind of what his dark materials does. Um, and uh, allow each one to evolve with its own set of physical constants. So it's not even necessary for it to be slightly different that we have in one version Spock has a goatee and then the other he doesn't. You could have a different speed of light or a different size of atoms or a universe which is entirely um, a soup of Higgs fields depending on the values of the physical constants. So you can have an almost infinite variety of universes if you tweak these constants just a little bit. I am right in thinking, though, you, most of the universe, if it was just tweaking these constants, would be totally unstable, because if you tweak the speed of light or you tweak the Higgs field or the gravitational field constants just slightly, the entire periodic table starts getting distorted and things don't work quite the same as they do. Well, that's right. It doesn't work the same. It doesn't necessarily mean it's unstable. Um, well, I, I thought there's only a few small numbers of combinations which will give you... Well, I mean, I thought we were in a very particular sweet spot with all our constants working out, and that's just put down to the fact that we're here to witness it. Well, we'd like to think we're in a sweet spot. It's rather like your creatures who didn't like oxygen. Uh, we think that this is a particularly nice universe because it suits us rather well. Um, but there are certainly lots of other universes where you wouldn't have carbon-based life forms, but you could have something else. You can have complicated uh, physical structures. And to be fair, I don't think anybody has really worked out the consequences of all possible changes in the physical constants. There's an almost infinite variety that you could have. So I'd be astonished if there aren't lots and lots of possible universes which are habitable by something, but not necessarily us. But do you think there'd be more that are able to sustain matter than aren't? Uh, I think that's a question of whether one infinity is bigger than another, really. Um, well, with mathematicians, <laughs> mathematicians do spend time proving that. Yes, but you, the, you've probably heard the story of the infinite hotel. Um, no, I haven't. So you have a hotel, and every room is full, and it's infinitely long. It's got an infinitely long corridor, and the rooms are numbered one to infinity, and they're all full. And a busload arrives with an infinite number of people. So the desk clerk announces everyone in uh, in whatever room they're in, move to the one which has got twice the number. So number one moves into number two, and number two, and now they're all even numbers, of course. So all the odd numbers are vacant, and there are an infinite number of odd numbers, so he can accommodate his infinite number of new guests. Yes. <laughs> okay, I think, so what you're saying is you don't want to compare infants. I, I, I think if there's an infinite number of universes possible, then it's a bit uh, odd to say that we're in a particular sweet spot. I think you made your point. <laughs> I certainly can't argue back, so I'll go with that. Um, so, yeah, so before we finish off, I think 
I think one thing you're finding quite interesting is talking about extra dimensions and we talked about how if a cube slices through a two dimension you get different shapes but the other really strange thing I've come across is if you have a four dimensional object and you shine a light on it you'll get a three dimensional shadow gosh I'd have to think about that one I haven't heard that before it's probably true I'm sure but, but you uh, would have to shine it onto a three dimensional object ah Right, so you'd have to have the shadow on a three-dimensional object. Presumably, because if it was on a two-dimensional plane, it would then be a two-dimensional projection of a four-dimensional object. Yes, that's right. Okay, I'm with you now. Yes, if you shine a, shine a light on a three-dimensional object, you get a two-dimensional shadow. If you hit a two-dimensional plane, yes, you lose one dimension in the shadow. And I have to say, at that point, I realise I don't have any idea what a four-dimensional <laughs> object would look like. No, it's, uh, it's like asking a flatlander to imagine a skyscraper. It's very hard. You can do it uh, with practice, but it is hard. Uh, are there people who go to clubs to try and picture these things? I think they're called mathematicians. <laughs> I thought we just reduced it all to equations. Anyway, thank you for dropping in. It's been um, great to have you here. Uh, we're just going to finish off with this um, last piece of music, which are... I'll let you explain. Well, it's the Blue Danube, uh, but it was featured in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where the shuttle is landing at the Space Hotel and lining up, and the two satellites are waltzing one against the other. And we were supposed to have all this 10 years ago, so I'd like to ask the engineers, where's my space hotel? And yes, thank you very much for listening. Mm.